Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue, where your fantastic hosts and real-life autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. For this episode, we watched a classic show for you guys, Bones, and we watched Season 7, Episode 1, titled The Memories in the Shallow Grave. We're going to talk about male versus female bones, ballistics, facial reconstructions, and amnesia, which leads to our true crime story of forgotten identity. So let's get into it. We open on people decked out in camo gear, and they're running through the woods, and they're in this huge paintball gun fight that they're all participating in. I it looked so it in- looks so serious. It looked so intense in the beginning. I'm like, are they in like a military training camp? And then I saw it was paintball. I camp. thought I was watching NCIS. I know this is usually how like <laughs> NCIS opens because <laughs> they're in like the military grounds now. It was just a really hardcore paintball dude. <laughs> I mean, I've never played paintball, but yeah, it looked very intense. Yeah, I've never played either. My fiance has played before, and he says it can get intense, but this seemed like next level. Yeah, <laughs> Dom's played before. Yeah, they were all decked out. But one of the guys gets hit with a bunch of paintballs, and he falls over onto a body. That was also so dramatic. Like, it looked like he was, like, actually being shot. Like, he, the way he, like, jerked <laughs> his body a bunch of times and collapsed over, it was like, man... This is insane. Being very dramatic. Yeah. I'm sure it does hurt. <laughs> Damn. Oh my god, it has to hurt. But he mistakenly thinks that this decaying corpse is a fellow paintball player, and he says, dude, you're covered in paint. Are you okay, bro? And then he touches the face, and his finger slips through the eye socket, and goo comes out, and it literally looked like milk. Yeah. And, like... I don't think that's typically how it would look for, like, decomp cases. The eyes kind of get dried out and desiccated. They almost look like they're kind of, like, deflated in a sense, but it is very gross. Sometimes it reminds me, and this is going to be a gross visual, but if you've ever seen, like, a ping pong ball that gets, like, deformed or, like, smushed a little bit, it kind of looks like that. Like, it does. It's so gross to explain. <laughs> I'm so sorry to everybody. But yeah, it, there's like not a lot of fluid, which I feel like everybody associates decomp with just being Goo. goopy. And it can be, mm-hmm. but usually the eyes are not. Because your eyes are like the last part of your body to fully decompose. And that's why we kind of have a hard time sometimes getting vitreous fluid, um, even if decomp is bad enough. But the paintball player obviously freaks out, and then we cut to Agent Booth and Bones getting called out to the scene. They're at the scene, and the entomologist for the Smithsonian is collecting bugs off the body. Bugs can be really important in determining time of death, and the entomologist will look at the bug's age to determine this factor since they're attracted to the body right away after death. And Bones notes that it's a very shallow grave and that the entomologist says that the recent rainfall must have revealed the remains. She guesses that based on the pelvis, the decedent is female, and she guesses that she's in her late 20s to early 30s. So the general structure of a female's pelvis is thinner and less dense than a male's, which is thicker and heavier because it's designed to support a heavier body build. In the women, the pelvis is wide and shallow, and males, it's more round. The entomologist says that the body is covered in Magisilia scalaris, also known as coffin flies, which is true, and apparently a lot of flies have this common name as well from what I found. They burrow into the ground when they sense carrion, which is just a fancy word for decaying flesh. The flies laid eggs, and now they're in the pupa stage, so he places time of death at around seven days. There's damage to the hard and soft palate, so it could be the cause of death. It's 
also definitely murder, and something was jabbed through the victim's hard palate into her brain. She says to bring the remains back to the lab, and then once they're back in the lab, they're removing the top of the skull with a bone saw, which is a huge green flag because their bone saw is exactly what our bone saw looks like. I loved that. I know. I thought it was kind of funny because, like, when you bone saw, there's, like, almost like a back splatter of, like, all the bone dust kicking up, and they had that in the scene, too, and I was like, that's really accurate. Yeah. I noticed that, too. That's why, I mean, I always wear my face shield during exams but especially during that like Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff gets spattered on your shield yeah i think she at least had goggles she had goggles and like an n95 so yeah they're also examining her clothes which is another green flag and they notice an oily residue on them the entomologist is going to compare the residue to the soil samples he took and the one assistant tells the doctor to make sure to not damage the skull fractures when using the bone saw which is another green flag. We do this a lot a lot of the time when we have gunshot wounds to the head. Where you never cut through your evidence. Mm-mm. Never want to do that. Even if it's not like on bone, if it's like a gunshot wound like on the skin or like you're doing like your Y incision, you don't cut through yeah. the wound itself. You always leave that area alone. Yeah, that's a huge thing. So they remove the skull cap and observe the inside of it and notice that whatever was jammed into the decedent's hard palate was jammed so hard it reached the top of her skull. My mouth hurts talking about this. <laughs> like, I feel like something's just it's so forceful. The, to- the top of your mouth, like, through to the top of your skull. Ooh. Like, that's going through all your sinuses. Like, my whole face hurts now. I'm thinking about it too much. <laughs> It was personal, honestly. Like, yeah, have that. Ugh. Oh my god! Then the doc takes the brain out, and I might have to give a red flag here after all those green flags because the brain is in one nice solid piece and it looks relatively normal. However, in a decomp case like this one, the brain would, for lack of a better term, be complete mush and goo, and it would not be in one solid piece. It would literally basically be complete liquid at that point usually in decom cases where we're doing like a full post or post-mortem exam if like say jess is cutting and she's like cutting she's like all right i'm gonna cut the skull i'll get like a bucket ready underneath the skull for her or like vice versa if i'm cutting and then you just scoop it's so gross you just scoop the brain out into the bucket because we still need to get a a weight for the brain gross it is gross in the smell that's the worst part Mm, yeah it's not great (laughs) so when she just plopped out a nice solid looking brain i was like ah she looks pretty decomp and like she's basically skeletal at that point i was like there would not be a nice solid brain in there unfortunately (laughs) so they take the brain out and see that there are beetles coming out of the brain and i'm not gonna like give a red flag for this because i have never seen maggots in an actual brain, even in the brain mush, but I don't know if this could be different because the body was outside for some time. Right. My thinking for how this maybe could have happened in the show's reality, I'm not saying this could happen like real life, is maybe they went into her wound in her mouth because the maggots are They followed the hole. And they just like went all the way up through her brain because that's apparently that where the whole wound goes. But again- she probably wouldn't have a solid brain if she was this decomp, so the maggots wouldn't just whatever. But yeah, that was the only thing I could think of in the show logic. 
that's not real life logic. Definitely. So the entomologist collects them and says that they may have ingested some of the particle on whatever weapon was used. We were curious if this was true, if an insect could ingest some particle from a weapon, and every search we came up with said that insects ingesting the biological material on the weapon... I couldn't find anything about, like, bugs being able to identify the weapon. It was just, like, bugs being able to, like they would get the blood off of like a weapon or like biological material off the weapon but not like but they're not gonna actually consume the material yeah like the metal and stuff but i don't know if it's true i don't know if i was searching for the right thing because he made it seem like oh we're gonna find out like what the weapon was made of from what the bugs ate and i was like can you do that i've never heard of that tv logic here doesn't really (laughs) play out (laughs) yeah i i couldn't find anything on it (laughs) I was on a lot of bug sites. I won. I'm going to link just because it's fun. It's called buzzaboutbees.net. <laughs> they talk about uh, there was a case where bugs were used to identify a weapon, but it's from 13th century China. And I actually remember learning about this in school. And someone had murdered a farmer. And when they were trying to figure out who did it, um, they brought like all the other farmers, I think it was, and they all like laid out their sickles on the ground and the flies were only attracted to one guy's sickle oh. because it still had like, it had blood on it. But that's the thing is it was ide- like, they were attracted to the blood, not like the metal, mm-hmm. but that's one way it was used to identify a weapon. That's interesting. Yeah. So I'll link that article, the buzz about bees, just cause it's a fun, <laughs> it's a fun name. And also <laughs> it's an interesting story. Yeah. That's super cool. But if, yeah, so if you study entomology and can help us figure out any of that, let us know in the comments. The doc says that judging by the shape of the injury and the fact that some of the brain tissue seemed to be torn, it looks like something metal with a jagged edge was used as the weapon. Meanwhile, Booth comes back from talking to the paintball players, and they said that they it was their first time using that site, and Booth is going to check out all of their alibis. The only criminal records any of the players had was drunk and disorderly charge outside of a frat house and another guy who served two days for not paying child support. Bones is going to examine the remains after the brain has been removed, and she's doing this, and another doc is there for observation, and we give a green flag for the photography by the tech here. Yeah! Her assistant observes some fractures that, based on remodeling, happened about six months ago. Bones notes blunt force trauma to the frontal bone, and there's also remodeling damage to the clavicle and acromion, which is the bony tip at the outer edge of your shoulder blade that meets with the end of the collarbone. All of the damage is on the left side, and they believe it occurred from a fall or a beating. Angela, a tech at the office, takes photos of the skull to do facial reconstruction, and so there's traditional methods for reconstructions, and this uses clay that the artist uses directly on the skull to form a face when you do the reconstruction, but more recently, digital facial reconstructions are the new norm because you can use DNA phenotyping, um, and phenotyping is basically like what you look like. And that can get a better estimation on what the person might have looked like in the end. And this new technology allows the artist to basically reconstruct a face in less than an hour digitally. And they can make like any edits that they want to based on the DNA. And it's just like a whole new technology that's coming out and people are using more and more because it's just more rapid and they get better results. It's super cool. I wrote a whole paper on it in a few years ago in school. That's awesome. 
The entomologist gets the results of what the oily residue was on the victim's clothing. Fatty acids rich in dye and triunsaturated esters, also known as linseed oil. It was in the oil and seeped into her clothes. So someone coated the bottom of the grave with linseed oil before putting the body in. The entomologist theorizes that it was used to keep her body from absorbing the water that was underneath it. So oils are hydrophobic, meaning that they repel water, so this is true. But he doesn't understand why the killer would worry about keeping the body dry. The doc that's examining the brain says that in addition to the stab wound, she found past brain damage that could have compromised brain function. This lines up with the remodeling damage to the frontal bone that Bones saw. The entomologist says that the tissue that the beetles had eaten showed traces of lorazepam, which is an anxiety med, so they think that she was being treated for anxiety that may have something to do with the prior brain damage. So, they believe that the victim was beaten around six months ago and murdered last week. Meanwhile, they do the digital facial reconstruction and get an immediate match. So, red flag here. I don't think that you would realistically get a match that fast. You could, you could get a, a, you can get a reconstruction that fast, but I don't think you would get a match. Like, what system are they comparing this in where it immediately is like, well, there she is. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Was it, it, there's like a missing person's place that yeah. they're comparing it to I, that was unclear mm-hmm. but their victim is a woman named claire serrano there were two missing persons reports filed on her in the last six months both reported by her husband so he is going to be brought in for questioning they tell the husband that they found his wife's body buried in hamilton state park they also tell him that they believe she was murdered the husband seems distraught and says but i just got her back He's a pastor at the First Church of Christ at Logan Circle, and he and his congregation have been praying for his wife's safe return home. He goes on to say that in February, six months ago, she just left one day and disappeared. Six weeks ago, she turned up in their neighborhood, but she didn't know why she was there or who she was. The agent with Booth thinks that this is a sign of retrograde amnesia. So this is the inability to remember past events or experiences. People can remember events today, but they can't remember memories that occurred before the event that caused the amnesia. The pastor husband says that the doctor said she suffered from head trauma while she went missing. She couldn't remember anything, not even what happened before she went missing. Her doctor said she must have started a new life somewhere else. The other agent with Booth says it's possible to take on a new identity when experiencing amnesia, and it's called a fugue state, and it can disappear as quickly as it appears. Her husband goes on to say that she was coming back to him and starting to remember, and that's how it was going to be like. But the remodeling damage was too much to tell if it was from a beating or something else. So they find out that Claire was being treated by a doctor named Dr. David Yazrick, a neuropsychologist that specialized in memory problems caused by amnesia, PTSD, and drug addiction. Booth and the other agent go talk to the doctor. Meanwhile, the entomologist sifted through the soil at the bottom of the grave and found fibers coated in linseed oil. So Claire's clothes were polyester, so these cotton fibers are from something else. And they are from upland cotton and are of very high tenacity. So... There was a cloth made of this fiber that was underneath where the body was found that was taken out before the body was put in. So it sounds like something was dug up before she was buried. 
Booth and the other agent are talking to Dr. Yazrick, who says that even though Claire thought she was someone else while she was missing, some faint memories must have come back to her that brought her back home to D.C. But even after returning to D.C., she still suffered from amnesia and had no distinct memories of her past. But during her last session, the doctor says she remembered moments of her wedding day that even brought her to tears. The doctor tells him that during their last group session, another patient who suffers from aphasia had become very attached to Claire. So aphasia is trouble speaking or understanding speech or reading and writing as a result of damage to a part of the brain that's responsible for language processing. Dr. Yazrick says that this patient has no history of violence, though, but it seems like he was infatuated with Claire. So meanwhile, Bones is examining the bones. It's always fun to say that. Uh, she's examining the bones once again as she always does because it's the name of the show, and observes a spiderweb fracture on the frontal bone. There is discoloration along the seam of the fracture, which is common when bone knits back together, but Bones doesn't think that seam discoloration is from remodeling. She thinks that Claire had recent head trauma that reopened the original fracture, and that the discoloration is from the soil that entered the wound. Bones thinks that the particulates in the skull fracture might be able to help identify the murder weapon. They say the word particulate so much in the show. She and she always like. uses like such big words and like the medical jargon that's so stereotypical with all these doctors. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely super guilty of it. Sometimes the entomologist does it. Hodgins, I think his name oh, is. Oh, all the time. Yeah. Like he was like, yeah, they're attracted to the carry-on. I was like, you can just say the dead body <laughs> just say he said another he said another really big word and the other person was like can't you just say polyester oh yeah <laughs> he was like, her clothing was made of poly blah, blah, blah. you just say polyester he's like i just did I was like, okay <laughs> all right doctor so-and-so sit down <laughs> booth and the other agent go to talk to the patient that had become attached to claire and dr yazrick says that this patient is only able to communicate if he plays his violin which i thought was very interesting and i don't mean to make fun of this but i i don't know why but until he started talking i was like is he just gonna sing to them like while he's playing i was i couldn't imagine someone just talking while playing the violin until this actor started doing it very well i don't know if he was actually playing but i was like is he about to just like sing them a sad song like what's about to happen right now but he ends up just i know because they said he had aphasia and i was like wait how is he going to communicate because i know people with aphasia have a really difficult time communicating and talking yeah there's different types of aphasia i remember i learned about two different types and like one was like you have trouble speaking but you can understand and one is you understand but yeah Mm -hmm. yeah vice versa but i know there's a bunch of different types but apparently his is he can't talk unless he's playing his violin So while playing his violin, he says that Claire belonged to him and that they both knew it. He also says that Claire was afraid of her husband and that her husband wanted to change her. While he is playing his violin, Booth notices linseed oil in his violin case. So they bring it back to the lab for testing, but it is not a match for the linseed oil found in the grave on Claire's clothing. I felt like it was an episode of Maury when they're like, it is not the linseed oil that's what i was thinking <laughs> you are not the father <laughs> you're not the murderer <laughs> you're not the killer the oils have different levels of paleomotelic acid i might have just butchered that pronunciation but bear with me <laughs> so this is an important fatty acid and it's found in most foods as well as tissues in the body they also find out that the cotton fibers found in the grave came from a heavy canvas used in handbags or luggage 
So linseed oil can be used to waterproof canvas like this. So it looks like someone dug up a bag that was hidden in this hole before dumping Claire's body into the hole. It doesn't look like it was the violin playing patient, so Booth decides to dig into the husband's past. He finds two domestic disturbance reports and that Claire had accused him of assault. They're going to bring the husband in for questioning once again, and the assistant, meanwhile, is looking over Claire's bones again. The show is called Bones. They're going to look at the bones a lot, guys. And he comes to the conclusion that she was also shot at some point. But it doesn't look like this is what killed her. It doesn't seem like a life-threatening injury, and the wound healed. It looks like she was shot about four months ago during the time she was missing. He re-x-rayed the bones and found a bullet fragment in the proximal femur. It looks like, quote, sloppy work that should have been removed by a doctor, which they're assuming she went to some kind of medical professional after she was shot because she survived the shooting. But they guess that she didn't go to a hospital and that someone was trying to avoid taking her to a hospital. Whoever removed the bullet didn't want anyone to know what happened. There are still striations on the bullet fragment, so they might be able to get a match on what gun it came from. So striations are the microscopic contour variations on the surface of the bullet, and in firearms evidence, the softer material is the bullet and the harder material is the gun barrel. So firearm examiners use the striations left on the fired bullets for their comparisons to match it to what gun it was fired from. So when the gun is fired, the bullet blasts down the barrel, and it encounters all these ridges and grooves that cause it to spin, which increases the accuracy of the shot. Those ridges dig into the soft material, leaving striations. So while all this is happening, Booth is questioning the husband who claims that the reports of disturbances were from neighbors who would hear Claire yelling, and he said the yelling was just because she was confused and she didn't know where she was. He also claims that she would think he was holding her against her will, and one time during one of these episodes, she tried to attack him with scissors, and he says he explained that to the officers when they reported to the scene. So did he... Like, is he saying he hit her in self-defense? That's what it sounded like to me. It was a, he doesn't say it outright that he hit her, but there were pictures of her in the file that you see with, like, bruises on her the left side of her face. And so I'm, it seems like he's claiming self-defense. He's, he's very a questionable person himself. I also, I may have just been suspicious of this guy because I had one of those moments where I recognized him from a very obscure, like, thing. <laughs> um, he's in... I'm pretty sure I actually, I didn't fact check this, so I could be totally wrong, but he, I think he's the actor who plays a character called Victor Pascal in Pet Cemetery, who's a very, he's like not a bad guy, but he's very spooky. He's like the ghost zombie that comes to warn them about bad things that are coming. So the I kept- The newer film or the 89 no, film? No, the, the original. Are you fact checking me? What's the character's name? Oh, Victor. Victor Pascal. P-A-S. He was in Bones. <gasps> Look at me! I knew it! I like. He was it... also in NCIS. Oh my gosh! You should see what NCIS episode is. See if he's the killer. <laughs> <laughs> so Booth asks the husband about someone named Karen Alford, who the police say was at the scene both times that the police were called for these domestic disturbances. The husband says that Karen was a friend of Claire's from the church. He denies that there is any kind of affair going on between them, which Booth doesn't believe. And neither do I. I Yeah, I never believe what any of them ever say. I was like, sure, Jan, I don't believe you. <laughs> I had no reason to not believe him. I just always believe. The, it's always the significant others doing something shady in these shows, guys. 
So Angela, like we said earlier, one of the attacks is now looking into any guns that would match the bullet fragment that was found in Claire's femur. They run the ballistics info through a database and are able to find the gun that shot Claire. Apparently, Claire had been shot during a robbery that occurred five months ago. She was just having a hell of a time when she was missing. She was living a whole nother life. I mean, literally, that's the whole plot is that she was on a new identity, didn't know what she was doing. So Booth found that a man and a woman had entered a home in West Virginia and the homeowner fired at the intruders as they ran off and that the bullet that hit Claire matched this homeowner's gun. So she was the woman who intruded. They tell this information to her neuropsychologist, Dr. Yazrik, who says that she could have adopted the persona of a criminal while she was in her fugue state if she was connected to a criminal at the time. The police had arrested a man who was with her at the time, and Booth goes to talk to him that afternoon. Dr. Yazrik claims that Claire never mentioned anything about this to him. Back at the lab, they found that the particulates found in the skull fracture Bones had mentioned earlier were synthetic pyrogenic silicas, melanin resins, and titanium dioxide. All of this matches with a paint manufactured in Germany for the German military. They used this information to find that Claire was killed with a field spade that was used for digging trenches and also for gardening. They just like throw that as an aside. (laughs) It's not just a militaristic weapon. You can also garden. But also for gardening. The end of the handle on this specific shovel has a 175 millimeter saw blade, which, you know, you need for gardening. Anybody knows that. Obviously. (laughs) Everybody knows you need a saw blade at the end of your (laughs) shovel when you're gardening. So this seems to be the match for the weapon that was jammed through the roof of Claire's mouth. And again, my mouth just hurts talking about it. So Booth is questioning the man who was Claire's accomplice at the robbery five months ago. He says he served 60 days for the breaking and entering, and they ask him about Claire, and he doesn't recognize the name at all. So they show him a picture of Claire, and he's like, I don't know what she told you, but that girl's name is Brenda. He said he met her while he saw her walking along the side of the road looking, quote, roughed up. So he gave her a ride, and they ended up hitting it off. Booth tells him that she's been found dead, and he says where they found the body, and it seems like this guy is familiar with the area. And he kind of says that bitch under his breath. And Booth guesses that Claire and he had hidden their stash in the hole where her body was found. So Claire must have gone back to get the bag of cash at their secret hiding spot the day she was killed. The guy claims that he's been a, quote, regular Boy Scout at his halfway house and that any of his supervisors will attest to that. Booth says that they couldn't find the bag, so they can't link the crime to this guy. But he also says if he doesn't cooperate, any prosecutor is going to believe that he killed her. So this guy starts talking. He admits that the bag of money was his, and he says that they stashed almost 80 grand in there. He says Claire must have brought someone along with her to dig it up, and that that person must have killed her and taken the money for themselves. Booth and Bones are looking at photos of the gravesite again, and Bones thinks that maybe the paintball spatters could be covering up some evidence around the scene. Booth also starts to think that it's suspicious that Dr. Yazrik didn't ask many questions about Claire six months missing while she was in a fugue state. So they go through his notes again that he willingly gave them from all of her Friday appointments, and he was like scribbling something in the margin of his notes, and Booth recognizes it as gambling shorthand. So they think that Dr. Yazrik has a gambling problem, and they know that he had been caught counting cards in Vegas before. So they think he did ask questions about Claire's missing six months, and she must have said something about stealing a lot of money and stashing it in the park. 
but he removed those notes when he gave it over as evidence so that they wouldn't know that he was the one who went to get the bag of cash with her and then he killed her so he, he could take the money to gamble they look at his bank statements and see that anytime he had any money it disappeared but this isn't enough to arrest him at the scene they're looking at the paintball marks found in the gravesite and aren't finding much the paint had hardened, so they x-rayed each glob to see if there was anything inside because they didn't want to crack the paint stains in case there was any trace evidence that might be lost. So Bones looks at the x-rays and asks them to look at one paint spot again. What they thought was tree sap under the paint stain actually looks like a piece of chewing gum, which Bones is just able to see. Like from- Bones isn't at the scene. They're like video chatting her in. Yeah. And like she's like looking through a screen to another screen and she's like, what's that? <laughs> and it's like a piece of gum underneath an x-ray of a paint glob. But she knows all. Cause she's everything. Yeah. They even make a comment about that. <laughs> like how she made them feel so dumb. <laughs> so the entomologist says that even if it's gum, the dye and the polyethylene in the paint would have destroyed the DNA. But Bones is able to see through these x-ray images. The screen and the screen. The screen the screen. <laughs> there is impressions of tooth on the gum. So she thinks that they can find their killer with teeth impressions. So Bones claims that these impressions would be, quote, as good as fingerprint, which I think is a red flag. That's not quite true. I, that's what I thought, too. Especially bite mark evidence. I mean, it's really not. I'm, I think whoever wrote this might have been confused because, like, dental exams like odontology exams can be really can be as good as in like identifying a person like if you have dental x-rays and you can match that up with anti-mortem post-mortem yes that can be as that's a good way to get a positive id for someone but just a bite bite mark evidence is completely different it can be messed up in certain ways it depends on what you're biting into what the texture is of what you're biting into if you've had any dental work like if like yeah because everybody gets braces and they get like invisalign it's just so variable and veneers yeah in your dental like my bart mark looks different than i did probably a few years ago because yeah changed but yeah and it's just one tooth yeah it was like the smallest piece of gum it was like a little chiclet like it's not as good as a fingerprint a huge huge wad of bubble gum it was a little like little fraction like with barely a little bit of tooth on it like a tooth mark on it but because this is tv to them it's as good as a fingerprint and booth subpoenas dr Gazdrick's dental records and they get a match for the impression on the chewing gum as they're arresting dr Yazrick, he says he gave claire her life back and he wasn't asking for much in return just to kill her and take 80 grand i guess so just go go to gamblers anonymous and get help the nerve and yeah they they talked about that like apparently booth used to have a gambling problem that's how he recognized the shorthand which i had no idea i don't really watch bones very often i've watched it very casually like enough where i can recognize the characters by name yeah but like i just watch it whenever it's on tv i I haven't watched all the episodes in order so i don't know i didn't know that he had a gambling problem but i thought this was a crazy episode because i I didn't really know anything about fugue states until watching this episode, and I didn't know that that was a thing. It's a scary thing to think about. It is. And retrograde amnesia? Wasn't that uh, 50 first states? Oh my god, yeah. Everybody, I feel like everybody thinks it's such a romantic movie, and I was like, that seems like a nightmare to me. <laughs> like, waking up every morning not knowing who you are, and your husband has to constantly remind you. <laughs> Like, hey, we're married and you like me. <laughs> like, it's the movie is cute. I've seen it. But I'm just like, 
that could have been like you could have made that a scary movie (laughs) this week's true crime story is one involving forgotten identity and this is the story of hannah up hannah up had been missing for nearly two weeks when she was seen at the apple store in midtown manhattan her friends, most of them her former classmates from Bryn Mawr, had posted a thousand flyers about her disappearance on signposts and at subway stations and bus stops. It was September 2008, and Hannah, a middle school teacher at Thurgood Marshall Academy, a public school in Harlem, hadn't shown up for her first day of school. Her roommate had found her wallet, passport, metro card, and cell phone in her purse on the floor of her bedroom. A detective asks Hannah's mom, Barbara Bellis, to come to the 13th Precinct in Harlem to view the Apple Store surveillance footage. Barbara watched a woman wearing a sports bra and running shorts, her brown hair pulled into a high ponytail, ascend the staircase in the store. A man stopped her and asked if she was the missing teacher in the news. Barbara said, I could see her blow off what he was saying and I knew instantly it was her. It was all her. She has this characteristic gesture. Another camera had captured Hannah using one of the store's laptops to log into her Gmail account. She looked at the screen for a second before walking away. The sighting was celebrated by Hannah's friends, many of whom were camping out in her apartment. They made maps of the city parks, splitting them into quadrants, and sent groups to look in the woods and on running paths and under benches. According to the Myers-Briggs personality test, which Hannah often referenced, she was ENFP extroverted intuitive feeling perceiving i'm infp sorry that's not (laughs) important i've never taken this test i am an infp so i'm the same thing except i'm just more introverted i'm gonna go take this test after we're done (laughs) do it (laughs) so this is a personality type that describes exuberant idealists looking for deeper meaning and connection five of her friends used the same phrase when describing her she lights up the room Two days after Hannah was seen at the Apple store, she was spotted at a Starbucks in Soho. By the time the police arrived, she had walked out the back door. The police recorded sightings of her at five New York sports clubs, all of them near Midtown, where the detective on the case presumed she had gone to shower. On September 16th, the 12th day she'd been missing, the captain of the Staten Island Ferry saw a woman's body bobbing in the water near Robin's Reef, a rocky outcropping with a lighthouse south of the Statue of Liberty. Two deckhands steered a rescue boat toward the body, which was floating face down. They lifted her ankles and picked up her shoulders. She took a gasp of air and began crying. The woman was taken to Richmond University Medical Center on Staten Island, and for three weeks, her own biography had been inaccessible to her, But when the medical staff asked her questions, she was suddenly able to tell them that her name was Hannah and to give them her mother's phone number. Barbara arrived within an hour and said that Hannah looked, quote, both sunburned and pale, like she'd been pulled behind a boat for three weeks. And the first thing that Hannah said was, why am I wet? She was treated for hypothermia, dehydration, and severe sunburn on the left side of her body, and her condition rapidly improved. Later that day, the police interviewed Hannah privately. Her last memory was of taking a run at Riverside Park near her apartment the day that she went missing. Barbara slept in a chair beside Hannah's hospital bed, and in the middle of the night, Hannah jolted awake, screaming, I was at a lighthouse, and then she immediately fell back asleep. In the morning, when Barbara asked about the lighthouse, Hannah says she had no memory of it. 
Hannah was transferred to a psychiatric unit run by Columbia University Medical Center, and she underwent a series of brain imaging tests, but the doctor couldn't find any neurological condition that would cause her to forget her identity. They concluded that the episode was, a, was psychological in nature, and as soon as she was lifted from the river, she remembered all of the details of her life prior to her disappearance. She was given a diagnosis of dissociative fugue, a rare condition in which people lose access to their autobiographical memory and personal identity, occasionally adopting a new one, and may abruptly embark on a long journey. The state is typically triggered by trauma, often sexual or physical abuse, a combat experience, or exposure to a natural disaster, or by an unbearable internal conflict. Hannah was hypnotized to see if she could recall a traumatic event that triggered her fugue, but she couldn't remember anything unusual. Hannah and her mother, father, and brother said that as a young child, she hadn't endured anything that they considered traumatic. Hannah thought that her fugue may have begun with a liminal phase. There were two days where she slept in her apartment but communicated with no one. Her bank records show that she had gone to a movie in Times Square, which she has no memory of seeing. The captain of the Staten Island Ferry analyzed the currents in the Hudson River. They surmised that Hannah must have entered the river in Lower Manhattan before the tide took her south. Based on the condition of her body the day that she was found, she and her family concluded that she had been at a floating lantern ceremony, which is something familiar to her, and three days later had returned to that pier and entered the water. It's likely that Hannah spent the night in the river. That's insane. This whole story she is spent, insane. The whole story is insane, but spending the night in a... In, okay, I'm assuming it's the Hudson River, and the Hudson River in New York City is nasty. <laughs> but, like, just spending the night in a in a river. Isn't it super cold? I mean, yeah. If When was this? It was September? Yeah. She had later checked the lunar calendar and was able to confirm her memory that there had been a full moon that night. Her skin showed signs of prolonged immersion, and Barbara said that Hannah vaguely remembered holding onto a barge, she may have wanted some rest, and then she realized that she was being sucked toward the propeller, which is a very dangerous thing, so she swam away. So she was just, like, treading water, like, all night, right? Like, how deep- I'm not- probably didn't know what she was doing. How deep of the water was she in? Like, was she- like, that's- I can't, like- that's i'd be so sore like treading water takes a lot of work (laughs) like if you're doing it all night (laughs) like that's insane it was as if her body undirected by what we would typically conceive as a consciousness were still intent on survival three years later on the morning of hannah's first day at her new job in maryland barbara got a phone call from the police she told her that hannah's purse wallet and cell phone had been found on a wooden footpath in kensington A colleague reported that she was driving to school and she had seen Hannah walking quickly in the wrong direction. Hannah's mother and friends drove to Maryland and looked for her in the woods and put up flyers around town. They discovered that she hadn't slept at her apartment that night before. In the previous 24 hours, no one talked to her, and the next day at 10.30pm, Barbara received a call from an unknown number. All she said was, Mom? Hannah had found herself in a dirty creek in a residential area in Wheaton, Maryland, a mile and a half from her school. There was a shopping cart beside her, and Hannah walked to the closest commercial area and borrowed a stranger's phone. She realized that she had been walking for more than two days. 
And she didn't even know she was doing that. What I think is, I mean, it's all insane, but in both instances, instances, she was like found in a body of water. Like she's, she was like walking into the river or Mm -hmm. walking into the Creek, but also in, she had left her phone and everything at her apartment for the first one. And this one, she left everything on like the path. I mean, I guess probably she was going into the water. And so she's like, I'll leave all my stuff here maybe. But like, interesting that there's like a pattern yeah and i wonder what her if she was thinking like oh i'm gonna leave it here and then i'll come back to it but she doesn't remember to come back right so hannah's friends were struck by these similarities as well between her two disappearances in both instances she had disappeared at the beginning of the school year after traveling with her father her father david up had pondered whether the vacations that they had taken together had triggered her a few years later she had another fugue state happen during Hurricane Maria in St. Thomas. Her friends looked everywhere and finally assumed that she must have swam out in the water, and they were very concerned that she may have drowned because the storm was, like, coming as this was all happening. Her mother, friends, and local search teams came up with nothing over months of searching. They never ended up finding her body, and her mom remains on the island helping and connecting with lost women she encounters through her journey of faith. And we got all this information from an article from The New Yorker by Rachel Aviv, and it's going to be linked in our show notes if you want to read the entire story. Oh my god, so they never found her the last time? No, they they looked and looked, but then, then the storm came, so it was almost impossible for them to do anything. Oh my god, that's horrible. I didn't realize that. I was just assuming they'd find her again. Oh, my God. Oh, and her mom still helps on the island. And I thought the, there was another, like, very clear similarity between this story and the story in Bones. There was that connection of, like, faith, and they both belonged to a church, and they were very, very, like, in-depth yes. in what they believed in. Yes. I noticed that, too. I had read, or when you were talking about it, when I had read it briefly earlier. Because, like, Hannah, when I was reading, Hannah was very involved in the church, and she, like, she loved her faith in God, and the, the story in Bones, like, they belonged to a church, and she was, like, he was a pastor, and I think the mom in this story was also a pastor. yeah. I think her dad was too, but I think he and her mother had divorced and weren't on mm-hmm. speaking terms. I think he was a little more intense with it if, from what I read. I don't think they ever figured out what exactly caused her fugue states, if there was any any trauma that they could come up with. I can't imagine just forgetting. Did, I, I want to know, did she ever remember certain things about what she was besides waking up when she... She said, I was at a lighthouse, but then she didn't remember saying that later. I don't remember from what I was reading. It doesn't sound like it. Which is also scary, because you have all this time passed, and you know time has passed. But there was actually one instance she was talking to a friend, and the friend was like, I don't think that she knew that she was gone for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yes, because she, I was just going to say that she said something like, oh, I have to get my classroom set up for school. Like, she didn't know school had already started. And he's like, school's been going on for a few weeks. Like yeah. you, you're you're behind. <laughs> but she didn't realize time had passed. Yeah, that's so scary too. Oh my god, that's a. Da- I was. I know. I was gonna tell a really dumb story, but now it feels really. Bad. Well, it's your story. It doesn't seem like we gotta end this on a, a lighter <laughs> note. <laughs> my dumb story of like when I'm nowhere near any kind of this situation. 
It's actually a story I told Jess recently because I was stupid. Um, Halloween, I went out, obviously, and I was all dressed up. I was Reagan from The Exorcist, if anybody's curious. And I went out, had some drinks and with my fiance, and then we came home. And I thought I had just like pa- I like washed, I took a shower, passed out, went to bed. And then the next morning I got up and I was washing my face. And as I like touched my forehead, it hurt. And I, as I touched my forehead, the memory came back to me that like when I came home, I tried to get a glass out of the cabinet to get some water. And I bonked myself in the head with the cabinet. <laughs> And you didn't remember but doing I, that. <laughs> but I didn't remember doing that until, and it was like so weird because I was like washing my face and like I felt fine and I, I touched that spot on my forehead. I'm like, ow. And then I'm like, oh my God, that's right. I smacked my head. It's <laughs> nowhere near this situation. But I didn't know it was going to end on such a downer note. And I was going <laughs> to talk about that. But now I feel like an idiot. I mean, I was. I was an idiot. But I mean, I was going to say I can relate to this because sometimes I just walk into a room and I'm like, why am I in this room? And I hate that feeling. And that's such like so not as dramatic as that. But yes, like everybody's done that where you walk into a room and you're like, what am I doing here? And you feel like disoriented for that one minute. So just like, imagine, like, I can't imagine if that happened for like weeks. And I'm just like, I don't know who I am or what I'm doing. That's so, like, that's, it's also one of those things. I feel like a lot of TV shows when I was a kid had an, an amnesia plot line. Like I know Full House had an amnesia mm-hmm. plot line where Michelle falls off of a she falls off of a horse. And then she was seeing, like, her little self. Yes. And herself was like, yo, like you gotta, like, get back to normal. And, like, <laughs> I forgot about that part that they used the twins. <laughs> she fell off the horse and bonked her head. But I, I totally, with all those shows, I thought amnesia was gonna be a much bigger part of my life. Like, I was really, <laughs> I was very scared of it. I thought it was... <laughs> <laughs> See, I sound like an idiot. There's so thought... many things in childhood that I thought were going to be much more prevalent in everyday life, and it's not. <laughs> Quicksand. Quicksand. I thought I was going to run into that way more often. People just going up to you and be like, hey, you want some drugs? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. <laughs> Quicksand. <laughs> Quicksand. I was very worried about really weird things because of television. I feel like I was worried about Quicksand because of Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Or like Scooby-Doo. Oh my god. Now I'm just on a tangent of just, like, dumb things I was afraid of because of television. Amnesia was definitely up there, though, because, like, 51st Days, I used to watch that movie all the time. Definitely Full House. I feel like there's so many others out there. There were other, like, sitcoms where that was, like, a plot line, just to, like, make it dramatic, and I can't remember off the top of my head what they were, but I definitely, they made it seem way more common than it is, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, (laughs) on that note... (laughs) (laughs) Of things we were afraid of. We always end up talking about things that we either are or were afraid of. You know, you come here for the gory details, but then we talk about our life. (laughs) We talk about stupid shit. (laughs) Me banging my head in a cabinet. (laughs) To end this episode, we tallied a total of four green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Bones does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. I think this might be one. I don't know if we usually give Bones pass. So this might be. I think the last few Bones episodes we did, they were all not passes. This is a decent one, at least in our opinion. But le- if you're a forensic entomologist, though, for real, let us know. Because I want to know that 
info about bugs being able to identify murder weapons. If they eat the particulates. <laughs> if they can eat the particulate and like tell you what it's made of. I want to know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. 